This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, what does this election mean to an activist fighting the opioid epidemic? Garth Mullins joins the Shift to tell us about the legislation that can make a difference in the fight against the epidemic that kills thousands of Canadians every year. Playing Kylo gets into more ways to celebrate gaming from home and the federal election impacting digital wireless usage and your privacy with legislation. And getting to know your candidate, we find out a little bit more about each of the five major candidates running in the 2021 Canadian federal election. It's all right here on the Shift Daily Podcast. Yes, do you guys really feel like you know the candidates here in the election? Not personally. Um, (laughs) I know that they are politicians and they say they will do things. But do I think I could have a fun non-political conversation with any of them at a bar? No. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree. I don't think I don't think I could sit down and have a conversation with any of them for the most part. Yeah, I don't know them. Which of the candidates would be the most fun at a bar? Mm, um, probably Jugmeat, I think. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I get bar vibes from Jugmeat. Yeah, yeah. Although I do sort of get the uh, the Yves Francois um, Blanchette. I feel like he's a. I think he's a shirt off after a certain number of beers kind of guy. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah perhaps. Yeah. I just think that it gets to a tipping point. That might be Aaron O'Toole. <laughs> he uh, he does have some uh, allegations against him involving bars in Montreal in the nineties. Oh, really? Well, thank you for letting yeah. me know. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, that but made it no awkward. complaint was filed. Yeah. No complaint filed. No, nothing criminally charged. It was brought up. I just thought we should mention. That very good. That's exactly what we should do. I didn't know that. Okay, which of the uh, candidates is uh, most likely to show up to a party in a costume when it wasn't a costume party? Oh, <laughs> probably <laughs> the, the <laughs> probably the prime minister. Which one of the uh, party leaders is most likely to appropriate other people's cultures? <laughs> that same fella. Okay, uh, let's let's uh, let's turn this. Should we turn this into a game? I think that we need to learn a little bit about some of these people, shall we? Do you want to do this? Yeah, of course. Everything's All a right. game during the election. Let's, let's just get started right out of the gate here on the shift with. Um, it's time to play. Know your candidate. <laughs> That's right, Bob. We're gonna get to know. Well, that's a good remix. We're going to get to know the candidates, but we're going to do it backwards like we often do on the uh, on the shift. A couple of trivia questions, multiple choice answers as we get to know the potential federal leaders of the major parties here in Canada. You ready to go? You ready to do this? Yeah, absolutely. Here's the deal. We each get to ask two questions. The multiple choice answers are there's five of them. Justin Trudeau, Aaron O'Toole, Jagmeet Singh, Anime Paul, Yves Francois Blanchet. Okay? The answer is going to be one of those. So, for example, Ryan, why don't you go first and see what we can do uh, in regards to uh, to your questions. And so let's see how well we know these people. And uh, take a wild guess here. Okay. With, uh, Gladly. With okay. All right. All right. This, this is, I think, a pretty easy question. 
Okay. Which of the federal party leaders began their career as a criminal defense lawyer? Criminal defense lawyer. Mm-hmm. Brendan, what's your guess? My guess? Uh, criminal mm-hmm. defense lawyer. That would be Jagmeet. I don't know. Okay. Yes. Yeah. All right. Yes. Okay, cool. That's correct. All right. So what's your, um, what's the next question then, Ryan O'Donnell? The next question is, uh, <laughs> which one of the federal party leaders has a questionable tattoo? Oh, I think I know this one. Do you have okay. a guess, Brendan? Oh, yeah, I'm going to go with the um, honorable prime minister. Oh, honorable I was going to say, Justin Trudeau, how are we doing? And the correct answer is indeed the Prime Minister. Yeesh. Wow. Well done. Brett and Kelly, two for two. Yes. Two I know these two. guys. I know them all personally. Yeah, you do. He's a, he's a big reader. He had lots of time at the bottom of the elevator before work tonight. So yeah. he's been reading. He's waiting down there. Okay. Um, all right, DJ BK. What are your questions? Let's go. Let's get to know okay. these leaders in this uh, in this fine election here. All right. This leader began their political career at the age of 12 in 1996 12. as an intern in the Ontario legislature for both the Liberal and Conservative Party. Whoa. Uh, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> um, age, of, uh, age of 12? In 1996. I, okay. I have a guess. I have a guess now, but I'm gonna let Ryan chew on this one. Um, I'm just guessing though. It's, it can't uh, be. It, it it can't be Trudeau. And it's not. I'm gonna I'm gonna guess Jugmeat. I'm gonna guess Jugmeat. Uh, my guess is uh, is Jugmeat Singh because I know that he's from Toronto, and based on the age that you gave there that seems to be around the right time so it's totally a guess the correct answer is anime paul oh really yes intern for the conservative and liberal party at age of 12 that's i knew that one would throw people off i just didn't expect to see her with the conservative i I guess she was 12 so the you know the difference political opinions change but yeah it's a tough one okay that's that's interesting wow that was pretty sneaky of you okay dj bk what's the uh What's the uh, what's the next question? All right, this leader founded the group True Patriot Love, a nonprofit group supporting veterans, members of the military, and their families. Oh, easy, Aaron O'Toole. I would say Aaron O'Toole. He was in the military. He's a veteran. Yeah, that's correct. That was yeah. my easy it one. It is. Yeah. Yay! Yes. All right. Okay. So, questions. You ready? Yes. Which hit of me. the five? Which of the five main party leaders? Uh, Trudeau, O'Toole, Singh, Paul, Blanchette. Born in Montreal. Uh, um, o- O'Toole. O'Toole. Yeah, I'm going to guess O'Toole. He, uh, my gut is kind of telling Trudeau, but I don't think he would have been. No, yeah, O'Toole. Final answer. I want to say Trudeau. You want to or you are? This is high stakes bingo here, buddy. Well, I've already got two in the can, so I can afford to lose one. I'll say Trudeau. (laughs) All right. Uh, Ryan. Yes. 
Yes. Brendan. Computer says nine. So uh, the 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 born in Montreal is Aaron O'Toole. Justin Trudeau, born in Ottawa. Mm-hmm. Jugmeet Singh, born in Scarborough. Scarborough. Anime Paul, Trana. Trana. Yves-Francois Blanchette, Drummondville, Quebec. Cool. That was supposed to be my twisty, my twisty one that nobody got, that was no one going to get a, was going to get. Huh. All right. Sorry. Um, all right. So this person has a degree, uh, a bachelor of law degree and a master's of public affairs degree. Uh, public affairs and law. I'm going to guess Anime Paul. That will be my guess as well. Yes! yes. Nice! Both of you! We're doing well tonight. You guys yeah, are doing very, very well. Okay, bonus question. It's time for the bonus round. Hit me. Okay, you ready for this? I am. I am. Which of the candidates is the youngest? Hmm. I feel like this is gonna be a curveball. I would say from a I would say at face value, I would go Trudeau. But I, f- mm, mm, I'm gonna guess uh, Trudeau. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna guess Trudeau. Yeah. All right. I'm going to go with Anime Paul again. <sighs> okay, I'm not gonna answer that question yet because there is a follow up. Huh? Which okay. of the candidates is the oldest? Um, it's either Aaron O'Toole or Blanchette. I'm going to go with Blanchette. I'm going to go with Blanchette as well. All right. So there's a little bit of yes. and a little bit of and some of the yes and a little bit of this and all that. <laughs> okay. Okay. Here is the summary. Of the candidates by age, the oldest is Yves-Francois Blanchet. He's 56. He was born in 1965. Looks good for 56. Okay, who's second oldest? Justin Trudeau. Second second old Trudeau? Mm. Uh, Your remaining choices are Anime Paul, Jagmeet Singh, Aaron O'Toole, and Justin Trudeau. I already said that Trudeau is the youngest. Yeah, I'm going to say Anime is the second oldest. Second oldest is Anime Paul, she says? He says? No, no, O'Toole. O'Toole. It has to be O'Toole. O'Toole. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Is the second oldest. That is... uh, 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 Computer says nine. Really? And, uh, Brennan, you said who was the second oldest? Oh, JT. Justin. Yes! Yeah. Wait a minute. Aaron O'Toole is is younger? Yes. Yes, he Aaron is. O'Toole Trudeau? is two. He's two years younger than Justin Trudeau. Wow. Hmm. That I, whole cover I, thing makes more sense now, right? When you look at the does. that Men's Health magazine style cover they did with their release on the platform, and why are the why they're trying to make him look younger? You know why they're trying to make him look younger and more sprite? Because he's actually younger. <laughs> <laughs> and we have the evidence. We can confirm. Dang. Yeah. So okay. then 
Jugmeet is the youngest. Jugmeet is the youngest. Okay. So yes. okay. here is in order uh, from the birth, because we do need to get down into the months to get this right. The oldest is Yves-Francois Blanchet. He's 56. Uh, no one comes close to him for age. The second oldest... Uh, oh, I might have got that wrong. No, second oldest in all of this is... Trudeau. Justin Trudeau. He yep. was born December 25th, 1971. He's 49 today. Yeah. The third is Aaron O'Toole. Uh, did I get that right? No, the third is Anna Mae Paul. She is oh, November third, nineteen seventy-two. She's forty-eight. Uh, Aaron O'Toole is January twenty-second, nineteen seventy-three. So he's only a couple of months younger than Anime, but hmm. by the year, uh, he's a couple. He is he is younger. Jugmeet Singh is forty-two, born in nineteen seventy-nine. Wow! Like in contrast. So you have- Contrast that Go to ahead. the U.S. election, where it was like a, what was it, a 74-year-old versus a 78-year-old? Wow. Look at that Crazy, contrast. Right? Huh. It Neat. also tells me that <laughs> I'm older than some of these people. Um, I'm older than Jugmeet Singh. That's the rest of them. Okay, so the, just to recap that, the oldest is Blanchette. Second oldest is Trudeau. The third oldest is Anime Paul, then O'Toole, then Jugmate. Aaron O'Toole is the yep. second youngest. You learn something new every day. Right? Um, huh. Okay, so that's important to know. That makes a lot more sense to me. That makes a... Um, that that makes a lot more sense to me by the way they're marketing some of these people. Okay, education. Want to do education? Let's do education. Okay. Justin Trudeau. Degree in Bachelor of Arts in Literature from McGill in 1994. Camp. Bachelor of Education degree from UBC in 1998. O'Toole, military in Trenton Search and Rescue Operations and Navigation. Law degree from Dalhousie. He worked in corporate law. Yeah. Jugmeet Singh. Sense, yeah. A York University degree in law, criminal defense. Anime Paul. Um, Toronto's Runnymede Collegiate Institute holds a Bachelor of Law degree from the University of Ottawa and a Master of Public Affairs degree from Princeton University. Useful for being uh, a Yves Francois Blanchet, graduate from University of Montreal, where he obtained a bachelor's degree in history and anthropology in 1987. So there you go. That is, uh, oh, we need the intro again, okay? Uh, that is, it's time to play Get to Know Your Candidate. And dance. Well, okay, can I ask a question, that. though? Yeah, okay. After, after all of that, here's the point. After all of that, would any of us be able to sit down and have a conversation not about politics with any of the leaders? I feel like I could a couple of them, yeah. Couple of them? Yeah. I'm going to save one like could... for an, another conversation, but could you do it? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I think a few of them. Not all of them. A few of them. Not all of them. Mm-hmm. No. There's a few I want to talk politics with, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Right? Well, there's a couple of them, and, and this is where, you know, you don't want to sound too populist and, and be super 
hey, let's just all be friendly, man. And you know what I mean? Sort of, le- I, I want leadership. I don't need friendship. I want leadership. You get what I'm saying? But I also don't want fake. Drop the mask, man. Show me that you're a human. Show me that you're a Canadian. I think that matters. I think there's a difference between being cool and a Kardashian and being authentic. And I think there's a big difference between being popular and being a leader. And so in my conversation around uh, around that, uh, that could be it. Okay, so maybe that's going to be our next game show. We'll be, uh, who would you have coffee with? What would you ask? This is the Shift Podcast. Election time is here, and there is a long list of topics that we know we're going to hear about during the election. Of course, there's going to be conversations around budgets, right? There's going to be conversations around the climate. We know that's coming. We've seen the conversations around daycare, for example. There are other topics that we have had the experience of more so of late that I'm curious if you want to see them be a part of the conversation in this election. Garth Mullins joins me here. Garth, how are you? Pretty good, Shane. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you very much. Thanks for taking some time. I thought of you, Garth. Um, I think of you often, actually. And I didn't mean for that to sound overly weird. Um, <laughs> it's all good. Thank you. I'm, but, I'm honored. Uh, I do. I do. I think of you often. And uh, I think of all the ways that you've helped me see things differently in and around the conversation around opioids. Uh, for those who don't know, Garth is an advocate um, for safe drug uh Product access? How would you describe it, Garth, to make it more clear than I just did? I'm just this old school dope fan that uh, doesn't want to die, and I don't want to see my friends and community and loved ones die, and so I'm pro not dying of overdose, (laughs) and that's That's what I do a lot of journalism and advocacy around. Yeah, and also uh, rock fan. So definitely, yeah, rock hard. Um, I just don't want to lose that that, uh, that sure. little piece of your life because I know it's an important piece too. Yes, okay, so- I'm a musician, got a new band in formation, new lineup coming. I can't wait oh, to nice. share some of that with people, but uh, we're yeah. still uh, getting the set list together and everything. But yeah. Well, when you have that, let's, uh, let's share some of it. I look forward to that. All right, for sure. Uh, just to be clear for everyone else, uh, drug use has been a part of Garth's life. So from his perspective, I want you to understand that not only has it been a big part of his experience, there is personal stories and personal connection here. Methadone is is uh, saving grace in Garth's days. And, and that's just the reality grounded perspective that you take. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. All right. So here we are in the election, Garth. Do you think we're going to hear anything about opioids in the federal election? You know, I, I always uh, do this little ritual at the, after this Ritz dropped. I kind of wait a little bit and see what what policy ideas or platforms are circulating around. And so uh, this morning I was looking at the, you know, the conservatives uh, platform book and the NDP and the Greens. Um, I, I'm not really so concerned about the liberals because I just think we're going to see more of the same from them. You know, they're not they're not indicating any great shift in how they're doing things. So, you know, as we've had 17 people a day in Canada dying for the past, I don't know how many months uh, we're going to have more of that. But uh, what I was surprised, maybe not surprised, just just disappointed (laughs) to see is the laziness of the uh, other parties um, platforms that I looked at. Um, No one's really seized with the issue. No one's uh, leaning into it and making a priority. Um, Some people have some really whack sort of out of date ideas. I mean, it's, 
it's uh, it's the same as it has been for all the elections I've noticed since the overdose crisis began about five or six years ago. So there there is no party that thinks drug users are its people. Um, and this is a big mistake because, uh, you know, like drug users are everywhere. Like they, you know, they reckon that maybe 10 percent of the society has, a, you know, some kind of habit or some kind of something going on. And and uh, that's I know in B.C. there's 100,000 people that have diagnosed or, or statistically are, are opioid use disorder type uh, people. And so that's a lot of people. And so uh, and everyone's got families, friends and coworkers that probably care about them. So that's a huge constituency that um, political parties are just ignoring. Well, and that's what I thought when you said that was, you know, uh, everybody has a brother or a sister or has met a brother or a sister. Right. Like it's kind of like that. If you want to talk about the psychographic of it all, you can always say, you know, if you're a drug user, know a drug user ever had an aunt or uncle met a child or had a or met another adult in your life, you've probably met a drug user, right? Like you can create that bucket pretty big, pretty quick. Yeah, for sure. So in this election campaign, I just think that there's no party that's um, motivated to ha- to say, we're, we're elect us and we're going to solve this thing because the solutions are known. And, y- and you and me have talked about that, but no, no party has said, yeah, I'll do it. I'll, I'll show the leadership. They don't think there's much in it for them. I think. Um, certainly some parties are worse for us than other people. Like uh, if the conservatives were to be elected, that things would be very bad. Uh, so for example, um, during the Harper's reign, uh, you know, we stalled for a decade on progress on drug policy reform and harm reduction. And uh, basically we're in um, just sitting ducks when, when fentanyl came calling uh, into the illegal drug supply so uh, things can be worse, but nobody's really saying I'm going to champion this. Um, more moderate, conservative leader. I mean, without getting your hopes up, is that at least positive move in the right direction? Because Aaron O'Toole has come out very much more moderate than some of the, the previous leaders. Yeah, I mean, he's uh, he's definitely not from the the right wing of this right wing party. But, uh, you know, Harper tried to um show himself to be a moderate you know a uniter of the broad tent of conservative of voters as well uh and so i i i got to know harper well enough i mean i never met the guy or anything but you know we all lived under him for a decade and i got to kind of feel like i knew what he was about i have no idea what aaron o'toole is about so you know i don't know if he would be different or worse or better than harper but uh you know they haven't really shown a big um rupture from that previous record he hasn't said okay harper was wrong that decade was wrong we we recognize that we played a role in in making things so bad uh we're going to turn the page and do something different they haven't ever said anything like that so what does it look like then um you know you can't really put your thumb on which party i I frankly would agree with you would take that stand but what do you think it looks like from a federal government i mean if you could wave your hand or magic wand or over the crystal ball garth mullins what does the message from the federal government look like or what does it need to look like if that leader stands up there and says, I'm here to help? What, what do they say? How did, where do they start? There's a handful of um, laws, policies and institutions in Canada that were created in the you know, uh, 113 years since the drug war started in this country, since uh, drug prohibition started. 
And those things all have to be taken down. They all just have to be burnt right to the ground and started over. So like the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, for example, that's got to go. Um, the RCMP's uh, drug policing functions, that's just got to be defunded and abolished and taken away. Uh, like I, th- I think the tinkering around the edges and saying nice words, time has long since passed. And so it's time to go right for those institutions and tear them up. You know, we just, we can't, we literally can't live with it anymore. From your perspective, Garth, when we talk about that, uh, you know, like uh, the, the drug agency type stuff, is it the drug agency the problem or is it the fact that it just frankly, in the the rules enable the illegal activity to profiteer off this, add in more byproducts, filler, if you will, into the drug supply and make it be so wild and out, out of control? Like, because I see a bit of a cause and effect here. Um, I realize that some of the agencies are absolutely propagating and, and perpetuating the problem, but is that kind of how you look at it? Is that, you know, all it does is create space to, for the bad guys to be bad guys. Well, you create this uh, infrastructure of the drug war, right? So you, the, the, the policies starting with the opium act in 1908 and, uh, and all of those laws and policies and institutions ever since they created the drug dealer, just like um, alcohol prohibition created Al Capone. Right. Al Capone was a creation of uh, American federal laws. So uh, if you if you look at if you look at the illegal market or organized crimes role in it, that's all down to um, federal law. Right. We can decide to switch that all off overnight if we want to. It's a matter of changing some paperwork. Uh, Mm -hmm. So this is and this is something that's been well studied and known for a long time. So I think the institutional and legal arrangements have made it so there's this illegal market. And the more the police chase after it, the more they try to clamp down on it over decades, the stronger the drugs get and the, 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 the lower volume they get to. Like fentanyl is a lot lower volume than heroin. When police were chasing after heroin, of course, the market is going to be like, well, we better find something that's smaller and easier to transport and easier to sneak past the cops. And the same thing happened with Al Capone and his friends, right? Everyone was drinking beer. And then prohibition comes along and suddenly it's moonshine. Like we all can't be smuggling giant <laughs> kegs of beer or barrels of beer around. You got to have the much smaller bottles or Mickey's or whatever of, of moonshine. So it's like that, that arms race, that iron law of prohibition, always stronger, always worse. Um, that's down to federal laws, policies, and institutions. Well, it's funny. Cause you say that one of the climate conversations is how can we concentrate products in order to save on shipping. And yet it's present in the opposite uh, form already in, in that you talk about. So it is interesting that that conversation fundamentally is already in front of many people. So uh, here's a curious question and, and maybe my naivety shines through here, Garth, but I know you'll hold my hand and care for me on this one. What about everything going on in Afghanistan right now? I mean, Afghanistan was such a big player in opioids. The Taliban was such a big player in that world. As you see sort of the opioid mecca in flame again over there, does that make things very scary for what opioids look like in the short order? I mean, a lot of a lot of opium was grown uh, in Afghanistan and has been. And, uh, you know, the Taliban does not like poppy cultivation but neither did the americans like poppy cultivation 
But uh, a lot of people worked in that sector of the economy in Afghanistan. That, you know, poppy farming was a big employer. Uh, like a lot of wealth got created. Of, of course, a lot of it got skimmed off to like local officials and, and corruption and, and whatever. But, uh, you know, if we had, um, you know, a, tr- uh, you know, a kind of, if we suppose we in this, in this um, wild future, we were able to say, look, uh, people doing heroin is um, that is of a known uh, concentration and, and, and known constituents. That's, that's okay. We're going to stop arresting people. We're going to stop making heroin illegal. And in fact, we'll have a trade arrangement so that we, you know, uh, allow people in Canada to purchase uh, opium directly off of farmers in Afghanistan. You could have almost like a, a free trade arrangement or something like that, or a fair trade arrangement between the two countries. Um, you would create a lot of employment in a place. Uh, you would you would create, um, you know, have, have more stable markets. You could regulate it so that everybody knew what was in it. Um you know, people have thought about these kind of arrangements before. Of course, you'd put all the people out of work who are busy working for the DEA in the U.S. or, or the cops or the border guards who are busy uh, searching luggage and stuff like that. Maybe they'd have to find something else to go look for. Uh, but, you know, it, it could reduce a lot of harm. And any any country um, where people – I mean, any country in the world, people kind of want the same thing. They want a decent job, you know, a chance to make a decent living and everything like that. And, um, you know – uh, farming poppies is, uh, is, you know, as good as anything else. Well, it's interesting. I mean, imagine if the border guards could actually just chase down the bad guys who want to do bad harm. <laughs> it's an interesting notion, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm just curious because I was wondering if the conversation, since we're on at least the lens of the election around how's Canada going to deal with this, um, has tickled your curiosity a little bit. Um, with everything going and changing so quickly over there. Garth Mullins is an advocate for not dying. That's a great way to say it. I like that. Is that better? Yeah, it's it's nice and short and it has uh, lots of application. You know, like uh, I was against the war in Afghanistan as well. Like, I don't think the 20 years that Canada spent there and the U.S. spent there helped anybody. Uh, you know, I, I, I think you can't go and impose regimes on people. Uh, whether they're a, a small community of drug users in the downtown of Vancouver or whether they're um, uh, people living in Afghanistan. I, you know, I think people have to have self-determination and that self-determination has to be sort of nurtured and enabled and all of that stuff. But uh, boy, there's a long history of, of uh, people learning the exact lesson that Canada and the U S and that everybody else just learned um, uh, coming out of, coming out of there. You know, there's, uh, I knew this guy who, uh, who was, or ser- who served over there. And he said, there's this expression that people tell him, um, you know, people in Afghanistan tell him, uh, you guys got the watches, but we got the time. And, uh, what that meant was you just wait and empires will pass through. Mm-hmm. Well, and an entire generation of people now disarmed on how to deal with it because it's been 20 years. There's a whole generation of people that have never had to live that way and now go back to it. A uh, whole other topic, I suppose, for another day. And that, I mean, go- the Taliban itself, that original difficulty was a creation of the West in trying to confront uh, the Soviet Union through a proxy war, right? So it's just like we, yeah. we have to realize that our own laws and policies and institutions are at the root of stuff that we like to blame somewhere else. So we have to do that extra homework of chasing it back to the source and then tearing that stuff out of the root. Well, that implies us actually taking accountability, Garth. I don't know if you know that (laughs) that doesn't happen often, uh, especially in politics and also in humanity. That war itself also heavily infected by heroin, wasn't it? So here we are back full circle in that conversation 50 years ago. Um, 
the heat dome, Garth, a heat dome in BC as a close example to you, but heat across the country. When I want to cool off, I have a nice lemonade. I go have a nice tea, maybe a beer. Um, the heat dome has seemed to have had also a, a big effect on, on drug users in general. Uh, I often say that one thing that Garth has taught me, and I share this regularly, is that we don't know who drug users look like, right? And so wh- what are you worried about now after such a hot summer in the West? Well, I'm I'm pretty sure that uh, whenever our, our coroner puts out the next batch of overdose fatality statistics, we're going to see a big spike during the um, end of June, beginning of July, when we had this heat dome here. And, um, you know, listeners might remember that uh, British Columbia recorded a, a record temperature, almost 50 degrees, like 49.9 or something like that. The town of Lytton burned to the ground. Um, you know, more than 500 people died just for, from the heat. And and um, we're still, I mean, we had the whole province is on fire right now as I speak. You know, the main highway is closed. It's It's a mess, right? But during that week, um, I know that uh, uh, of at least two people who died, and we're pretty sure from from heat during that time, um, that that people still had to go on with their daily lives. Drug users still had to, you know, feed the habit and not be dope sick and try and try and keep ahead of all that. But um, when you've got a potentially overdose causing drug supply and you add heat, that just nudges you much much closer to that that cliff, that that moment where you could die. And I'm I'm pretty sure that uh, overdose fatalities will be up uh, that week by the combination of the contaminated drug supply that's been here for years now and the heat. Um, I also think that as the province burns, there's all these drug users who are being evacuated right now from small towns around BC and you get cut off from your supply or, or you get cut off from your pharmacy, like, like me, where I go in, uh, to go get the methadone every day or something like that. You know, So there's a lot of people who are going to be um, inhaling a lot of smoke and a lot of heat and a lot of stress and then cut off from, uh, from the drugs and they're going to be dope sick and in a bad way. Uh, a lot of drug users already have uh, underlying health problems from, from you know, the, the uh, contaminated drug supply. So, so people might not be that resilient to begin with. So y- you think of almost everything like this, these kind of crises, they all affect and magnify each other and have knock-on effects, you know? That's why I really appreciate talking to you because I would never have thought of the I can't go to my normal guy, right? And I've got to go to some strange guy in order to get um in order to get my supply, right? So that that's I didn't even think of that. I was thinking more like in the heat, people are exhausted, they're looking for an out. We go for a beer, whatever. What does a drug user do in that particular case? Are they any different? Do they go for a beer or do they go for the dope to get away from you know just the overwhelming effects of holy cow, I've had enough of the heat. Yeah. I mean, that probably people do both. You know, I certainly go for a beer also, but, um, and I, I know people try to just, you know, drink water, cool down or do all those things, have a popsicle, whatever they can, whatever they can manage, you know, but, um, it's like, uh, if you're wired, like if you're really got a habit, that's like a 24, seven, 365 job, right? Like, it doesn't give you time off. There's no vacation, pay your benefits. So like whether it's hot or cold or raining or zombie apocalypse, meteor shower, you're, you still got to do it. You know what I mean? So it's like, um, but there, there'll be probably some, uh, some weekend warrior type uh, recreational drug users who maybe are like, 
oh man, I can't imagine doing a rail of Coke in this boiling hot apartment or um, that's the only thing I can think of doing. <laughs> so I'm mm-hmm. sure, I'm sure there's all those combinations, you know? Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm going to acknowledge this because of the fact that I think that our conversation improves when we acknowledge, when we throw bias and prejudice in there. I also, when I asked that question in my mind, Garth, I pictured that person on the street, you know, that sort of homeless cracky, if you will, image, which is not everybody. In fact, it's uh, quite few between when it comes to actual drug users. So I just, I'm, I'm not saying that it's right and I wish it wasn't, but I just want to acknowledge the fact that we go there, we think of that, we think of that person and it's not that person. It's not just that person. It's often not that person. Um, and I, I share that just so people can know that it's okay when you're retraining your brain and about perception of things to to think of those things and just go, whoa, that's not what's happening here. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's not on you, Shane. I think that image comes to mind for a lot of people. And it's because that's the image we've seen in you know media coverage and representations of drug users for years and years and years. And that's because... Um, if you don't have a house and you have to use on the street instead of just using it home, you know, on your on your couch or your coffee table or whatever, um, that's the drug user that's visible to the public, that's visible to the journalists, to to the media, right? So that's the person you could see if you're driving home or something like that. So it's it's no surprise really that the the visible thing in society is the thing that that jumps to mind. But but what we know about that kind of drug user is that points a finger at a housing crisis. You know, which, of course, has this magnifying effect of the overdose crisis or a complication. I tell you, in Vancouver, though, um, the housing crisis is so bad, there's uh, tent cities pop up in city parks. And so the cities and the province has spent a lot of time and effort clearing these things out, you know, having cops run people off, putting big blue metal fences around all the parks. And then, uh, <laughs> you know, what what we do know is that Sleeping outside in parks actually can um, afford people the opportunity to be cooler than in a stuffy, small SRO room. So during the heat dome, sleeping outside actually was protective for some people. And during COVID, um, it, the, the virus was less transmissible outside. So these um, things that seem like obvious solutions, like, oh, we have to drive people out of the parks or something. If you look at them through a public health lens, sometimes you see the opposite. That in those places, people set up uh, overdose prevention sites and they uh, gave water out to each other that, you know, the camp elected, they always do in Vancouver, uh, little councils or little, you know, governance bodies. And um, they uh, ask for donations. And so people try to make the best of a bad situation, organize themselves. And so sometimes um, when we when we when that image comes to mind of, of the homeless drug user, um, we just look a little bit deeper and you can see there's a whole bunch of things in there. And it goes back again to those laws, policies, and institutions that might be causing the situation. Garth Mullins is an advocate for safe access to safe drugs. Um, and your your input is very important. I would like to see this come up in the election, Garth. I'd like to hear it. I want to hear, I want to hear that uh, a piece of policy is at least kicking the ball down the hill, like I say, to get things started. And I think that's important. I really appreciate you being here, brother. Thanks for having me back. It's always great to talk to you, Shane. It's the Shift Podcast.
technological world, and here to host the segment is Blaine Kylo. Uh, looking particularly svelte there, buddy. I know you got the beard all trimmed up, got a little haircut. I mean, have you been over, uh, new active through the course of the summer? What's going on? You look great. Oh, well, you're very kind. No, it's just, it's all illusions, right? It's just playing with light here in the room. You <laughs> get the light angled just the right way, shadows where you want them, and takes Get 10 one of those apps. Away. That uh, that puts your eyebrows on and your eyelashes on for you automatically in your photos and smooths out your freckles. Yeah, I've I've got a face for radio, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, how you doing? How's everything going in uh, in the Kyla house this week? Yeah, we're good. We're all a little shocked that we're halfway through August already, and two weeks from now, kids are going to be going back to school. Maybe, probably, sort of. Yeah. Um, this week. For some school districts in Ontario, uh, in Alberta, there's been a few that have that has started as of Tuesday, which is crazy to think. Ryan said earlier when we started the program, he's like, whoa, can't believe it's almost September. Yeah, and down in the States, there's a lot of school districts that start early in August, and they just take longer breaks, and they get out earlier. They, they get out at the beginning of June. Nice. Is that good, though, as a parent, or is that harder? It is what it is. I, I'm actually a fan of the, the concept of year-round school with longer breaks in between. I don't see any reason why we need to take two full months off all together at the same time in the mm -hmm. summer. We don't need to work in the fields anymore like we used to. Yeah. No, we need to go to Disneyland, buddy. <laughs> That's what we need to well, do. Well, yeah, except we can't. <laughs> except we can't. No, no, no Disneyland for us yet still. No. Not yet still. All right, let's dig into uh, some of the gaming world of Blaine Kylo. Solocore.com, S-O-L-O-C-O-R-P-S.com, and the Solocore on the Twitter, too. The Call of Duty, Ryan O'Donnell's ears perk up when you say that. There's some new info. Well, every year there's a new Call of Duty coming out, and the one coming out this year is called Vanguard. That's kind of what we know for sure. And if you want to find out more about what Vanguard is all about, you can do so online tomorrow, so or Thursday, on Thursday. So for those of you already in Thursday, later today, for those of us still um, in the Wednesday night mode, it's tomorrow. Warzone is called tomorrow party. Always. <laughs> Warzone is Call of Duty's online free to play experience and what call of duty is doing is what Fortnite has been doing for the past little while which is using that experience and that that sort of virtual space to make announcements and so we're going to learn all about vanguard tomorrow at, or on thursday 10 30 pacific 1 30 eastern um you want to be in Warzone because not only is there a new experience there, Battle of Verdansk, which is going to put 150 players in virtual battles in this really incredible space. And then at the appropriate time, the game will sort of pause and we'll cut to more information about Vanguard. What we do know is it looks like it's taking place during the Second World War. And there are four teaser trailers that have come out in the past week. And those teaser trailers are set in the sort of the major 
fronts, the major theaters of the Second World War. So the Eastern and Western fronts in North Africa and the Pacific Theater, those are the trailers, the teaser trailers that have come out. So the expectation is, is that Vanguard is going to include those settings in the Second World War as a part of the new Call of Duty, which we expect will be coming out in November. For those that aren't game savvy, Blaine, uh, Fortnite created this whole theatrical trailer thing. They sort of started it around music, if I'm not mistaken. Call of Duty's been around forever. So has Fortnite really forced Call of Duty to get more interactive and hip that way? Has it really set a new new precedent there? You know, there's a lot of handing off of ideas back and forth lately. Fortnite was not the first battle royale experience that came out fortnite started out and it was kind of like a roblox minecrafty thing where you would sort of be in this shared space creating shacks and huts and things like that and then this player unknown's battleground came out and that's the game that really introduced this battle royale where you force players to compete with each other until there is only two left because there can only be one standing at the end. And PUBG, which is shorthand for player unknown battleground, it was a big deal. Fortnite saw that and the developers over there at Epic were like, huh, maybe we should do something with that. And that's when they came out with the Fortnite battle Royale game that everybody knows and loves and plays now. So, Call of Duty is simply borrowing from what is working from others in the same way that Fortnite borrowed from publisher unknown Battleground. Uh, if you see something that works and you can make it happen in your space, you're wise to do so. Well, and with a captive audience, those theatrical trailers are pretty cool. I watched one of the hip hop ones. I think it was a Travis Scott one on Fortnite. You know, it was kind of cool. It was like a cartoon concert. It is incredible. You really, it is a shared experience at a time when we can't actually get together the way we used to, to have shared experiences in person. And even if you're not in a virtual reality space, even if you're sort of looking at it on your TV, it's incredibly compelling and really interesting to be in that space. Uh, I think there's quite and uh, there's great energy in there, and what Call of Duty here is leveraging Warzone as an opportunity to reach out to a massive audience um, because they have thousands of people playing at any given time. Blaine Kylo QuakeCon gets started. What is it, and what do we need to know about it? Another opportunity to celebrate gaming at home on your computer or on your TV. Quake is a gaming franchise coming out of id software which is now owned by bethesda it created quake 25 years ago so this is the 25th anniversary of this game it's a first person shooter and it was one of the first first person shooters to come out at the same sort of same time as doom um and the thing that quake did different is it was one of the first games to really come out with multiplayer online gaming and that's what made quake so interesting 25 years ago and it's why 25 years later annually people get together to celebrate the new versions of quake and all other kinds of things so there's panels and interviews and behind the scenes looks that are happening starting thursday and running right through the weekend it's all streaming on twitch 
and it culminates on Saturday afternoon with the Quake World Championship Grand Finals. If you want to see some pro gamers going at each other virtually, you could do worse. A text comes in from Security Jerry. It says, all these fancy video games come out and video consoles, and I'm still playing the original Doom on my PC. Is that is that common, too, some of those classic gamers? It, it is, actually. And because of um, work done by people to maintain these games and keep them up and running, even on new computers, uh, it's possible to play all of these old games. There's actually a video that I've got on my website showing somebody playing through Quake as it looked back in 1996, but on a modern computer system. So yeah, it's amazing how the graphics might look a little dated, but the gameplay itself for a lot of these games that people still play, the gameplay holds up quite nicely. I tried to find Utopia. It's way less exciting on these new computers, that's for sure. Um, Okay, let's switch gears here, Blaine Kylo, into gadgets and charging. This sounds exciting. Tell us about this stand. Yeah, you know, I was late coming to wireless charging because Apple was one of the last smartphone manufacturers to bring it out. Samsung was very early with wireless charging. But when I got access to wireless charging on my iPhone, it's hard to look back. It's so nice not to have to muck around with a cable when you want to charge your phone. But not all wireless chargers are the same, right? Because if you don't get your phone directly on the pad, the mat that the charger is on, you can actually have it sitting there for an entire night and wake up in the morning with 3% on your handset because the coils in the phone didn't align with the coils on the charging mat. But Mophie's got a new one. It's an upright stand, and it takes advantage of MagSafe that is built into the new iPhones. And so it's upright, so when I hold my phone near the stand, it snaps into place, so I know exactly that it's lined up and it's going to start charging. And because it's an upright stand, I can have it at my desk and actually use my phone as a little notification screen, almost like I would use a desktop computer or a, or a desktop screen if you've got uh if you use your iphone for a clock or an alarm at, on your bedside you can actually have the phone rotated on this new mophie stand it's the snap plus wireless stand um, it, it makes charging easy. It makes your phone accessible. And if you don't have a MagSafe smartphone, Mophie's got these little magnetic rings that you can actually put on your smartphone to turn it into a MagSafe-enabled oh, handset, cool. which is kind of cool. I have two of them. One of them doesn't have any indicator like you talked about. It has a tiny little, it's as big as a pin that tells you if it's charging. Um, and so you, that's exactly, it's a gamble. You like, maybe it, it, it said it was charging when I went to bed. Then I have another one that has the ring flashes. That one's kind of cool. Cause you put it on and then if it moves in the nighttime, the ring starts to flash and it will wake you up. Um, oh, that's nice. only drop I love being yeah, that woken up by my flashing lights. I know, but at least you you don't better than waking up after your alarm was supposed to go off. Cause your phone died. Yeah, but um, then, so get one of these Mophies because then sounds like your a great phone idea. snaps into place. You know that it's there, and you can mm -hmm. sleep comfortably. All right. Blaine Kyle is giving away Mophies for Christmas. Look forward to it. Um, okay, digital legislation was on the books before the election came along. Where are we at? Uh, they're all sort of dead on the wire. 
Um, there were three different things that the liberal government had put forward. Bill C-10, which was about broadcast and internet. Bill C-11, which was about privacy. And most recently, Bill C-36 around hate speech. And as we learned from Michael Geist, the Ottawa lawyer who is the smartest brain in the country about this stuff, um, all of those things are now dead because the session has come to an end and none of those things were made it through um, the various approval vote stages that they needed to. So if the Liberals form the government again, Will they bring these back in these forms or will they come back in a different form? We'll have to wait and see. Um, what I was more interested in is Geist taking a close look at the digital policies that are part of the Conservative Party of Canada's election platform. He actually praises them for having a couple of things in their platform. They are um, The Conservatives are very into free speech. Um, they don't like some of the things that the Liberals had introduced that they thought were trying to curb free speech. Uh, but Geist is confirmed about the CPC's plans to reform copyright and fair dealing, which is what in Canada we call fair use. That's the clause where if you're doing a review of a book, you get to use sections of that book in your review without having to pay a copyright fee. In Canada, we call it fair dealing. And the Canadian or the Conservative Party of Canada, they actually want to roll back some of our copyright legislation that has just been reformed and want to roll back some of the protections that we have uh, to use things without having to pay copyright fees for them in a fair dealing manner. So pluses and minuses to the CPC digital policies that are in their platform, I'm really hoping and I expect actually that Geist will take a close look at what the Liberals and the NDP parties also have as a part of their platforms as we move forward over this next crazy month. I look forward to getting the insights on all three parties too. Blaine Kylo, Solocore.com at Solocore, S-O-L-O-C-O-R-P-S. Uh, and Blainer, thanks, buddy. Great to see your face. Yeah, you too. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.